Welcome back to Data Protection Gumbo for episode number 137. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro, and today I speak with Howard Ting, CEO of Cyber Haven. And in the past decade, Howard has played a critical role in scaling Nutanix and Palo Alto networks from initial sales to over $1 billion in revenue and successful IPOs. Howard has also served in go-to-market and product roles at Redis, Zscaler, Microsoft, and RSA Security. And in this episode, we discuss data detection and response, the concept of data lineage, and how compliance and regulations affect the ability to analyze and manage data effectively. So let's get right into this episode. Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, Howard. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Demetrius. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for taking time out to uh, appear on Data Protection Gumbo. It's a pleasure to have you on. Why don't we start off by you just giving our listeners a, a little detail about yourself and also Cyberhaven? Sure. Yeah, I'm the CEO of Cyberhaven. I joined the company in 2020. Uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic. So uh, most of my uh, tenure here has been under uh, unusual times, to say the least. Uh, I've been part of go-to-market teams and uh, product management teams for a bunch of successful companies, including Palo Alto Networks and Nutanix and a few others. Most recently, I was the CMO at Redis, uh, Redis Labs. And uh, I came here because I was really excited about the problem that we're solving. Data protection has two sides to it. Uh, one side is making sure that the data is resilient and available. And the other side of it is making sure that it doesn't get stolen and misused. Uh, so we work on the second part of that problem. Uh, so Cyberhaven is really focused on helping organizations protect their intellectual property and sensitive data from theft and misuse. And it's a very, very big problem. It's a pervasive problem. Hardly anyone has got this problem under control. So uh, I got pretty excited about the, uh, the mission of the business. And um, that's why I joined. Okay. I love it. Seems like we already have our podcast episode name. There's two sides of data protection. So why don't you also tell us a little bit about something that's called DDR, data detection and response. Do you have, uh, I guess, what, what's your view of data detection and response? Yeah. So uh, the category that we operate in has historically been known as data loss prevention or data leak prevention, DLP. Uh, DLP, unfortunately, has never really worked that well. We have this uh, tagline that says DLP works for 1% of companies out there and uh, the other 99% are, are struggling uh, or, or looking to upgrade their data protection program. And uh, the reason for that is because DLP tools historically have only really worked for very um, structured data in, in, in sense of um, there's a very well-formed pattern to the data data like social security numbers, credit card numbers, PII, PCI data, because all of those tools are based on scanning the content and looking for a pattern in the, in the text. We don't take that approach. We're not limited by that approach. And so we felt we needed to reclass, classify what this category is really about. And just in the similar vein to what EDR, Endpoint Detection and Response, did to the antivirus market, they changed the whole paradigm of how you solve for endpoint protection. We're doing the same thing to DLP. So we play in that category, but we're really trying to create a new category here that we call data detection and response. It's a whole different way of solving the problem. Okay. And is that is that something that has been picked up by Gartner and they have a magic quadrant on it and, and all of that good stuff? Or is it just 
like a totally it's still early days for that. Uh, it's still early days, and uh, I've been part of uh, category creation at several companies. And I can tell you, getting Gartner to pick up your category when uh, you're the early pioneer and uh, evangelist for it, uh, it's a long road. And uh, we're in the early innings of that journey, but uh, we have been talking with the analysts. They all like the approach. They all love the story. And uh, we're pretty confident based on the reaction from buyers and CISOs that uh, this is a, a category that's that's just ready to explode. And uh, we do see uh, some folks starting to play back the term to us. You know, uh, just this morning, there was someone that filled out a form on our website that said it was a VAR, a reseller, that said that their customer is looking for a DDR product. So we are starting to see some pickup in the market, but it's still early days as far as get, seeing a, a Gartner and Cube. I guess one one question for you would also be, what, what do you think are some of the most important things when it comes to, let's say, classifying data and, you know, number one, making sure that you're able to find uh, all of that data that's that's out and about, whether it's on, on premises or whether it's in the cloud. Do you also see any, any challenges with being able to do that um, in an automated fashion? Yeah, it's classification is really the Achilles heel of data protection. If you can't classify data accurately and consistently, then you have no chance of protecting it. And so our view of classification is that we need to look beyond content. Historically, all of the classification technologies have been based on content inspection, right? Really looking for patterns and text, like I mentioned earlier. If we can expand how we classify by looking not only at content, but also context, I think we can do a much more accurate job of classifying sensitive data, and we can be much more comprehensive about the sensitive data that we can classify. So I'll give you an example of that. Data today that are crown jewels for most digital businesses don't have any well-formed pattern to it. Source code, machine learning models, clinical trial data if you're a pharmaceutical company, uh, plant schematics if you're in manufacturing, you know, drilling maps if you're in oil and gas. All of this data has no pattern to it that you can easily identify using uh, text-based matching, what we call regular expressions or regex. So what you need to do is look at other elements of that, uh, of, of, about that data. For example, where did this data originate? Who created it? Who else has access to it? How has it been shared? When you look at all of those elements and really look at the full context of the data and the full lineage of that data, like where did this data originate and where is it gone? you can do a much, much better job of classification. And so that's our approach. We not only do the content inspection, but we also follow the data and we understand the origin and the lineage of the data. By pairing those two elements together, we're able to do a much, much better job of classification. Got it, got it. And, and I bet this was sort of difficult when you guys were, were building this out in the architecture on the back end, that there has to be some some microservices running and you know some Kubernetes and maybe some Docker and and all of that. How challenging was it to build a solution like this? Very challenging because if you think about the tech stack that uh, Cyberhaven's built on, all of these technologies have really matured in the last five years. You couldn't build a product by Cyberhaven. You couldn't solve the problem the way that Cyberhaven is solving it five years ago. So some of the elements of the tech stack that we use are uh, we use like Kafka for streaming in all the events from the endpoints that we're monitoring, like millions and tens of millions of events. We use uh, a graph engine uh, to combine these events or stitch them together into what we call data flow so we can see how the data is moving from person to person and app to app. And then we have to do real-time analysis on a very large data set. So we use an OLAP uh, online, you know, uh, large-scale analytical uh, database. And 
all of these tools, you know, have really kind of matured in the last five years, right? And so uh, the underlying technologies have played a critical role in us enabling us to solve the problem this way. Yeah. So, so you mentioned graph graph database. I have read a little bit about it, and it seems to be fairly hot right now, especially when you are performing analytics of uh, different user user interactions with like data over time and also across the enterprise. I guess from your perspective, what's the big deal with with graph databases or or using that sort of technology? Yeah, I think graph helps us understand the relationship between things, right? And that's and historically graph databases really emerged to deal with use cases like social media and things like that, understand relationships between people. But you can also use graph databases to understand relationships of other things. Like for example, we can understand how data is related to every individual that touches it and what they did with that data. And so that's essentially how we're using the graph uh, for us. Um, we're mapping and graphing all of the interactions uh, uh, that users have with pieces of data, specific pieces of data. And then we have to analyze that graph in real time to detect risk and then be able to prevent uh, exfiltration. And it's a really hard problem to solve because when CyberHaven started, we actually tried to use some of the off-the-shelf graph databases that are out there in the market, products like Neo4j and Arango, and there's some others that I'm sure you've heard of. However, those databases are not really designed for this particular use case because of the depth of the graph. When you have to really go very deep in the, in the graph and you, because uh, you've got data that moves, you know, a thousand times, you know, hundreds of times or thousands of times, or, you know, it's stolen. Um, a lot of those off-the-shelf graph databases won't be able to perform uh, at, at that kind of scale. So we had to build our own graph engine. And uh, uh, that was a key enabler for us to be able to solve this problem. Yeah, that, that sounds pretty complicated. And it's, it's way over my head, but I, I've heard it a few times. And... Uh, I, I also want to get your opinion on some of the things that are being tossed around like ransomware and, you know, it's just all of these different types of security events are, are really hot right now. And uh, I want to get your view on how you view some of these security risks like ransomware and also how should customers be thinking about protecting themselves or being able to recover from something like ransomware? Yeah. Let me, let me talk about the, two, I, I think data protection also has two main vectors of, of threats or, or risks. One is external and the other is internal. Ransomware is mostly an external threat, right? You have foreign nationals or hacker gangs that are basically coming after organizations to, to try to you know, extort them to, to pay ransoms. And obviously ransomware will continue to grow and explode if we can't do anything about the crypto uh, that, that fuels ransomware. Um, now, I think there's two versions of ransomware. I, I like to say there's kind of like ransomware V2 happening now. Ransomware V1, uh, the first original version of ransomware is basically attackers would come and try to lock up your data and prevent your business from running. I think the backup companies, some of the companies that you've worked with, Demetrius, and, and, and you know, we know all the names, all those backup companies have done an excellent job of solving that problem. So the attackers did what they always do. They adapted. And so they've adapted now to what I call ransomware V2, which is now they don't just come in and try to lock up the data. They actually want to steal it. They want to get it out because if they can steal it, they can then monetize it in other ways. And we've seen some interesting things like, for example, sometimes they'll try to uh, take source code of a game from a gaming company and try to sell that on the black market. 
Other times, they'll take PII from an e-commerce company and threaten to leak it out because by leaking it, that e-commerce company is going to be subject to GDPR fines. And so then your choices are pay the ransom or pay the fines. And neither one of those are obviously good options. So by uh, stealing the data, they actually have many more alternatives to monetize that attack. And so I see that happening more and more. That ransomware is kind of evolving now from this first model of locking up the data to now wanting to really steal it. Got it. And, and you mentioned compliance and GDPR, there's CCPA. There, there's so many, so many alphabets uh, when it comes to, to regulations. But um, maybe, maybe let's dive into a little bit about compliance and, and regulations. And uh, I want to know what your view or your opinion is around how effective should an organization protect against uh, some of these different uh, types of events that are out there, like ransomware, like the external, and maybe the internal as well. And um, what are some of the things that you feel that enterprises or companies should do in order to make sure that they are compliant when it comes to, um, you know, just making sure that data is safe? Yeah. See, I, I actually think, Demetrius, that the compliance mandates right now are just scratching the surface of what organizations need to do. It really governs a specific type of data, uh, the data that is about users and individuals that can be um, uh, used to identify them. And I think that's just a, a sliver of the data that needs to be protected, right? Because when you think about most digital businesses today, it's all of their IP is in data, essentially, right? And that IP today and the data behind it is, is unprotected. It's not regulated today. And most of the spend that we have in this category, in this DLP category, is about compliance mandates like GDPR, PCI, all this kind of stuff. But there is no regulation yet for the other data that we must protect. And I think that will come. I actually do think that that's something that the industry and, and government have to work towards. And when you look at the types of threats that I mentioned earlier, we haven't even talked about the internal threats. There, there's all kinds of research out recently about um, because of the great resignation and all the movement of employees, uh, we're at a much heightened level of uh, uh, insider risk uh, threats. And there's no question about that. You and I, Demetrius, have worked in a bunch of companies, and we all know people that we work with that come from their prior companies, and they bring data with them that their former employees don't right. want to have. Yeah. Right? I've been part of companies where there were lawsuits related to that data. So we know this is a pervasive problem. When people change jobs, there's oftentimes data leakage and data risk. And that today is essentially a problem that's unsolved, and it's a, it's a massive problem. Um, I saw a survey last week that said something like, you know, 37% of employees uh, are admitting to stealing data when they change jobs. And I thought, well, that just means that the other 63% are not willing to admit it because everyone yeah. is taking data, right. honestly. Yeah. Uh, we know that. And so uh, it's a big problem. And I think that insider risk threat is only growing as more and more people change jobs, the ephemeral nature of work. You know, I think you and I are probably a little bit older generation when, you know, people would work at a company four or five years. That was considered a long tenure. These days, long tenure is like two years. There's just much more movement now. And as more movement of people between companies occurs, there's a lot more data that's moving between these companies. And that's a big problem that we need to get our arms around. Got it. Got it. Yeah. All of that makes a lot of sense. And 
Uh, I love that you mentioned the internal threats. So you're you're dealing with you know just in, insider threats like you know employees, disgruntled employees, employees that you know just happen to take some data that they shouldn't. Maybe they know it, maybe they don't know it, but you you have to be able to account for that. And you also need a system where where you can have that set up to automatically detect uh, if you know an anomalous event has happened within your your walls. And let's say they downloaded too many files or something, something out of the ordinary that doesn't normally happen. There, there has to be a way to flag and alert that. How important do you think AI, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning will be uh, just in the near future? I, I know long term it's supposed to take over the world like robots, <laughs> but just from a short, short window. So 2022, 2023. You know, what, what's your view on AI and ML and, and the importance of it, especially within our industry of data protection and, and storage and backup and recovery? You know, I think it can play a huge role, but the limitation for most uh, models, uh, AI and ML models, is, is the training data. Unless you have a massive data set to train your model with, uh, the accuracy and efficacy of these models is going to be pretty limited. So I think it can play a very big role. Like I, I, I'll give you one example of a problem that we're looking to solve. We want to see when, because we're a company that follows the, the lineage or the journey of data, we want to see, for instance, when data, uh, sensitive data from certain places goes to new places that it's never gone to before. And it goes there by certain users that may indicate some sort of anomalous behavior. Now, in order to make that model really accurate, you have to dump, train that model with a lot of data. And a small, a relatively small and young company like Cyberhaven, we don't have that massive training data set. So we are looking to deploy um, more AI and ML into our detection capabilities. But I do think that the largest companies uh, have a discrete advantage here because they just have a much better, much bigger uh, platform of, of data to work with. Uh, so I do think that you'll start to see some pretty significant breakthroughs in more AI ML based detection uh, in 23 and beyond. But I think for this year, I think it's still fairly limited to the number of companies that can execute on, on, on something like that. Okay. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, I, I also had another question for you. You you, you mentioned data lineage a, a few times now. What what does a an example uh, lineage uh, of data looks like? Like since the data was created, and some of the stages that it go through, and when it actually gets laid to rest or sent to cold storage, and no no one touches it again or, or, or tries to recover it or, or restore from it. How does that data lineage look? Just give us an example, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'll give you one example that we always use in a lot of our demos and presentations. Let's say you're doing annual uh, compensation review in your HR department. So the compensation and benefits manager goes to Workday or whatever HRMS you're using. They export all the salaries for the users. They then share that file uh, on their internal file sharing application. Maybe it's Box that the HR team is using. Then you have all the HR business partners that support the different functional groups. They go and download that spreadsheet, they start working with that data. They put it into presentations because they're going to go make a presentation at the sales QBR, the HR business partner for the sales team. Then they take that presentation, they email it to a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. And then any of those right. people that receive that file, 
can do something with it, like steal it or, or whatever. And so you have a very difficult problem there. The first problem is you have to follow the journey of that data and trace it all the way back to its origin so that anyone that tries to take that data and put it somewhere where it shouldn't go, we know where the data came from so we can understand the, the sensitivity level. Because in this example, right, we have names and numbers. It could be anything, right? It could be salaries of all my employees. It could be the office football pool. It could be what people owe for the company picnic, right? Like names and numbers. What can you really ascertain about that? But if you can follow the lineage all the way back to source where it came out of a work day, then you likely know that that's pretty sensitive HR data about your employees. So that's one part of the lineage. The other part is following the data as it transforms. Because in this example I just gave you, we started with a spreadsheet that got exported out of a SaaS application and it ended up you know, downstream as a presentation. And you can imagine all kinds of permutations, right? Like you could take screenshots of things, you could take, you know, uh, you can convert these files into different uh, for file formats. You can, you know, the data can move to different applications. So not only do you need to be able to trace the original back to the original source, but you have to be able to follow all the derivatives and all the copies of this data. So those are the two problems that are really, really difficult to solve without data lineage. And I think without solving these problems, there's no way to protect this data. Hmm. And, and, you know, as you were speaking there, I, I thought of blockchain. And uh, just having that that ledger on, on the back end where everything is recorded, and there's essentially no way to to really get around the lineage of transactions. Is, is that something you see in the future? I I already know of a couple of, a couple of companies that are already using blockchain technology, um, maybe in the storage space. Is, is that something that that you also see as as being a possibility as uh, being used? I could see some possibilities there, but I also see some potential challenges because sometimes the, you know the movement of data uh, is is not meant to be public. You don't want to know that the CEO sent a file about a potential merger and acquisition uh, deal, right? You don't want that public on the public chain. So there are instances where maybe that that won't work as well. But I could see some cases where having blockchain become the uh, irrefutable record of the movement of data uh, could could become quite valuable. Uh, but I think it, I don't see anything like that in the enterprise today. Uh, we're probably really on the bleeding edge of something like that. Got it. Got it. And for, for all of the, the CISOs out there and maybe some CIOs as well, what, what does that conversation look like if uh, you, you are trying to get across the message that um, data detection and response is like really needed within within an organization. H how does that conversation look? Does it start off with with just around maybe classifying the data, or does it start off around you know making sure that uh, do you really know you know the lineage of your data and where where has that data been? You know how how does that how does that look and what what does that sound like that conversation? Yeah, I can tell you our our uh, meetings and. Conversations go very well. Uh, I had the chance to present to an executive leadership team of a very large oil and gas company last week. Um, the exec, the entire executive leadership team, including the CEO and the CTO and the CIO and everyone else, and uh, it was a home run meeting because they all know the problem. When you present the problem and talk about data risk and how data moves when people change jobs and how difficult it is to prevent some of these. Uh, thefts of data, 
based on you know how easy it is that for data to move inside a modern organization like think about if you just rewind 10 15 years if you were a really determined insider that you and you wanted to steal data and let's assume for a minute your company had some basic controls in place it would be pretty it would take a lot of effort to be able to get out a, a, a large volume of data right like you'd have to you know encrypt it somehow, you'd want to move it to a USB drive, maybe the USBs are locked down. So you'd have to try to find a way that you know, you could get on a machine where the USB wasn't locked down. There's all kinds of things that you'd have a hoop that you've got, you'd, you would have to jump through today. If you wanted to steal data, I would just share it on, you know, a personal version of box or a Google Drive. And most organizations can't tell the difference between corporate and personal usage of these cloud sharing applications. There's so much sharing and sprawl that happens today. Uh, there's no way that any organization would be able to pick through all of that activity to determine when something bad is really happening. And so I really think that the urgency of the problem is very, very, uh, very easy story to tell. You know, the urgency has to do with the heightened nature of data risk with external and insider threats. It has to do with the ways that work is changing, how people work together, how they share data, how they work with people and what people they work with. That's changed a lot. Uh, but the final piece of this picture is, I, I touched on earlier, the technologies that we have at our disposal to solve this problem have also greatly matured. So if you're still trying to solve today's problem with 15-year-old technology, that's when you're really in trouble. You really have to try to bring the modern techniques and modern approaches of big data analytics and graphing and some of the things that we talked about. If you bring those technologies to bear on this problem, then you have a fighting chance. Got it. Got it. And maybe one or two more questions before we wrap up. But it also makes me think about um, just an external auditor or some type of investigation that's happening um, is that also something that uh, DDNR kind of helps bring to the forefront and makes those types of events a lot easier? Absolutely. Uh, in the first iteration of our go-to-market, we were selling mostly for that type of use case, forensics and uh, investigations. And uh, one of the first things that I did when I joined the company was really pivot us directly into selling against the D D DLP budget, because that's a budgeted line item that most organizations would have, especially larger organizations. And also a lot of younger organizations want to deploy some sort of DLP product, but they just can't use the existing products out there because of its limitations, as we talked about. So I think the market is massive here. Uh, the DLP market is probably like $3 billion, but... All of it is with old technologies for a compliance use case. If we add all of the use cases around IP protection, I think the market's 30 billion. I think it's at least 10x the size of where it, should, where it is today. So I think we have an opportunity to really enlarge the market. And I think DDR, it, it, we're, we're just barely getting started here. And I really see that this is a category that will be a huge part of the overall data protection mix uh, as, as we look forward. Okay. And you, you also mentioned the great resignation. What, what advice do you have maybe for a, a senior in college and they are looking to get out into the world of data protection and storage and backup and, you know, the, the fun side of things that, you know, where you and I play, what advice would you give, give for them right before they graduate as far as uh, getting into this industry and also maybe 
uh, looking for a um, an open position? You know, I think the first thing I would advise is just find the right company, find the right young company that's got an interesting approach or technology because those companies if you join the right one can make a career if you especially if you get in early uh the trajectory of your career growth can be astronomical if you join the right company so i would look for interesting approaches to these big problems that we've been talking about and if you get on board with one of those companies in any kind of role uh you have a great chance to to have an excellent career because if you join the right company uh, the job and the scope of the job will will change dramatically uh, over time because these companies that are fast growing, they need to promote from within. They need to grow their, uh, their executive ranks and their leadership bench from within uh, and uh, creates tons of opportunities for, for uh, young professionals. So I would say, you know, join a young company before it's hit that unicorn status, right? Get in, really try to get in early. Got it. And uh, also a book recommendation. What what are you reading nowadays? Is that is that one book that you could possibly say that it's changed the way that you you look at business or the way you look at life? The book I'm reading right now is uh, it, it kind of harkens back to my my uh, roots a little bit in uh, marketing and uh, storytelling. It's called uh, Words Like Loaded Pistols, mm. uh, and it's a really interesting study about rhetoric how we use words to convince people and, and, and shape perception. And, and uh, uh, you know, it goes all the way back to Aristotle and then talks about, you know, modern day leaders like Obama. And uh, it's, uh, it's a really interesting book. Uh, it's a very dense read. <laughs> so it's not like a pleasure uh, beach reading, um, but that's the book that I'm into right now. And, uh, and it's, it's been fascinating uh, to really like study how rhetoric has evolved over the years. Well, awesome. I'll have to check that out. And is there any social media that you would like to share? Maybe follow you on Twitter or, or LinkedIn? Yeah, I'm probably more active on LinkedIn these days than Twitter, but my, my, uh, both my, uh, my handles are just Howard Ting, uh, my first name and last name, uh, both on LinkedIn and Twitter. And uh, it'd be great to see some followers and, and questions about anything that we talked about here. And uh, certainly we would love to hear from any organizations struggling with uh, insider risks and, uh, and, and uh, anyone that's struggling with data protection. By the way, I'll just leave you with this mm-hmm. final thought. Sure. The, the last part of the you know, insider threat landscape that we haven't talked about is the whistleblower. One of the biggest stories last year, Francis Hogan, Facebook files. That's a data protection problem, right? Francis Hogan... Uh, had nothing to do with even those projects, right? It's a lot, the ways that organizations work today, we've democratized access to all the sensitive data inside our organizations. A developer at Microsoft today has access to all the source code repos for every product in Microsoft, right? Most of the companies that, especially in the tech community, we just want to give unfeathered access to everyone because we think that's the way that we're going to create better businesses, better products, get products to market faster. But if you're going to open up access like that, like what Facebook did, you have to have some better tools and controls around how that data can be used and where it can go. And so I really think that, you know, the whistleblower risk, it's got to be something that every organization must be thinking about. There was a story today, this morning, a Credit Suisse whistleblower leaked records of all the uh, uh, scrupulous customers that they've been banking over the 20, 30 years, last 20, 30 years. So you got to imagine like what organization doesn't have something in their business that they don't want out there. And think about all the employees now that have access to that data. Any one of them 
those employees at any time might decide that they want to expose that. And that would do just massive damage, like what Francis Hogan has done to Facebook in the last year. So I really think that that insider risk threat that we talked about, it's not just like employees moving on to the next company and they want to take some of their customer lists and, you know, or source code with them, any of those, you know, those kind of common use cases. But now it's got these other forms. They come in other flavors, right? And so I think we're just getting, uh, we're just seeing the tip of the, 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 the iceberg here in terms of how big this problem really is. Yeah, that's all scary stuff, and um, you have effectively scared all the gumbo listeners away. So <laughs> if if my numbers drop, Howard, I am blaming you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, great conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if anything, they should probably want to, you know, kind of poke around a little more and just uh, make sure that they are doing everything that they can to, you know, protect their environment and know exactly what's going on uh, within and uh, without uh, around their corporate walls. So, uh, Howard, it's definitely been a pleasure to have you on, and thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn, and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.